My name's Lucy Layton from Jersey Heritage, and with this podcast, we're going to be exploring Jersey's links to transatlantic slavery. So today I'm speaking to Martin Toft, who's a Jersey-based photographer, educator and photo book artist. We're going to be talking about how his interest in Jersey's trade networks and specifically the links to transatlantic slavery has developed over the years. So Martin, could you just tell us a bit about yourself? Yes, hello. Um, yeah, so I've been working you know, as a, as a photographer, artist for about 30 years and my interest has always been in subjects where people has power and entitlement and wealth but also the people who doesn't exercise that power and uh, my interest in this particular uh, part of Jersey's history uh, began with a number of different um, discoveries in the archives locally so first and foremost at the Société Jersey's there's a number of different items that I uncovered which was a, a manuscript uh, by, written by a Canadian uh, historian, photographer, Phyllis Gertrude Ross, who had this fascination with the Gaspé Peninsula and the Channel Islanders who lived there and settled there. And she began to write a manuscript called The Seaflower Venture, which I believe she completed in the 1950s, which was based on Charles Robin, uh, is a fictional account of his life, uh, using his own diaries that he wrote in the 18th centuries. So Charles Robau was, he came originally from Jersey, didn't he? And he's one of the sort of biggest names, the biggest families involved in the Canadian cod trade. Yes, I think he's seen as one of the premier merchants, you know, who settled in the Gas Bay. But of course, he was involved in a family business who was already operating in the Newfoundland fisheries. Because the Newfoundland fisheries had been operating for, since the 16th century, with a number of different Jersey families operating from there, but Charles Robin was important because he went to the, the Gas Bay or the Bay of Chaleurs and realized that that was a good um, you know, landscape or environment, fishing, fishing environment for him to set up a business there. Robin would uh, mainly you know, trade with markets in the West Indies, the Caribbean in the beginning, and then later on in South America when the Brazilian market opened up and, and he also always had this connection to the Mediterranean. And again, that, that market, you know, developed alongside the Brazilian market. So he had operations and agents working, you know, in Canada, in North America, Boston, Halifax. He had agents in the West Indies. Um, he had agents in Brazil and Lisbon was a major uh, station for him. And Napoli was a kind of central, a central focal point for him as well, where he had his... Uh, one of his family members operated as an agent there. Just going back to the to the cod for a moment, could you just t- tell us specifically how cod had a role to play in the slavery story? Because I understand there were mm. two different types of cod that were prepared. Uh, I mean, yeah. So with with if you, if you take Charles Robin, um, his company, because obviously there was many other Jersey merchants who did exactly the same. But he. He, he was very successful because he produced the best quality of the dried, dried cured cod. But he also produced what he used to, name, used to call it as an inferior fish. And in, in, in the vernacular, they used the word green and yellow. So green is the kind of cheap version of the cod fish, which is essentially when it's, when it's caught, they got it and then they salt it. They don't dry cure it on the, on the beaches. So it's a much quicker process to bring the cod fish to market. So he would sell that 
that green fish or inferior fish that they used to name it, you know, to the plantation uh, owners in mainly the Caribbean and West Indies, and set later on in the, in Brazil when the market opened up there because. The West Indies markets were the first area where he could sell his codfish to and the Mediterranean. And then the Brazilian market kind of opened up as a third option. But he was very much a pioneer in establishing uh, a kind of trade network to Brazil through his own business contacts. So this green cod was being sold to plantation owners to feed their enslaved workers? Yes, I mean, that's my understanding. It's not, it's not written directly like that in the records, but... Uh, Rob Ann himself talks about, um, you know, his ships. I mean, his ships, we can look at the records where they go. They go to Barbados, they go to Trinidad, they go to Tobago. They go to a number of different islands in the, in the kind of Caribbean uh, network. So the reason why they went there was to sell that inferior fish because it didn't have the same, didn't last as long as a dry cured fish. So he would go there, sell that fish, and then obviously they were also trade with, with, with sugar, rum and molasses. And then these products you would then bring with, with, you know, on the ship to Europe and sell them on the European market together with his premier product, which is the yellow or the dry cured uh, fish. So although he wasn't involved, obviously, directly in slave trading, he was part of that network transporting yeah. green cod that could be um, bought by plantation owners, but also um, tr- trading, dealing in slave produced um, products as well, like the sugar, coffee, tobacco, rum you've mentioned. Correct. I mean, you know, that's how the triangular trade, you know, is, is essentially operates. Um, you know, the, because there's hardly, there's hardly any money or uh, there's no money exchange between these kind of transactions. It was pretty much, you know, we have a product, you can have this amount of product, we will then have some, other, some of your products in return. And then obviously, then the, the wealth accrues from that by trading it to the European markets. Um, so he has, I mean, when you go through the records, uh, there, are, there are small references to the transatlantic slave in terms of him being aware that slaves in- exist on the plantations. Because there's a few entries, for example, in his own diaries. As, as the years has progressed, because I've been working on it for, since 2017, and I've been, been to visit these outposts, I call them the outposts, in the whole network. Um, you know, then other stories comes along, other new discoveries are found. And so in 2018, uh, the garrotype that arrived at the Sausages U.S. Photographic Archive. But in 18, a, a, a portrait is essentially donated, or two portraits, in fact, uh, by a relative in England who had inherited these portraits. He didn't know much about them. so. Uh, they show two Jersey people, one called Jean Gibault and his son, John Friedrich Gibault. And one of the inscriptions on the back of this daguerreotype reads that the daguerreotype was made in a town called Muratiba in 1843. And it also said that the person in the picture was born there in 1823. So obviously that became a fascination for me. And again, it's one of those examples where something arrives, uh, you know, often in, in, a, in an archive somewhere, and you think, that, that's interesting, I need, to, I need to learn more about who this person was, why they went to Brazil, what did they do in terms of making a living. Of course, with the knowledge I already had, I was pretty, pretty, pretty confident they probably uh, went there and, and set up a plantation, but I had no evidence of that. So going back to Brazil, I mean, 
obviously that was one of the last countries to abolish slavery. I don't think it was until 1888. So what do we know about the Jibo family and the plantations? What kind of crops they were growing? Presumably they would have been using slave labour. Going to Brazil in 2018, um, having, you know, having a, established contact to a descendant of John Friedrich Jibo, um, you know, I had conversations with him about what, does, what did he know about his own family history. But in fact, he knew very little. So before I arrived, you know, to Muritiba, uh, the village or the town in, in an area of Cachoeira is called, um, I had already done some research in some of the state archives in Bahia itself. And again, I managed to find some records um, where the Jibo family was mentioned. And there were two judicial records, uh, court cases, if you like, where the Jibo family, and his name is mentioned, and his brother, George, or Jorge, Jorge, and his mother, Sarah Jibo, is mentioned in this court record. And they had borrowed some money from another plantation owner, and in one of the clauses, there was a reference to uh, them uh, essentially offering, uh, as, a, as a guarantee, if they couldn't pay their debt, was to pay uh, for six slaves. So there is, you know, that's where there was direct evidence that the plantations were using slave labor. But I had that, I, I kind of thought that that was the case. But of course, you can't assume that that was the case. But at that time, to be talking now, uh, we don't know exactly when they, they started their plantation. Um, um, so, you know, at that time in Brazil, enslaved labor, uh, was used uh, in most in most of the, uh, the plan in most of the, the farms, so it was not unusual. So I took this information with me um, to Muritiba and I presented it to to uh, to Jose, and he didn't seem seem too too surprised. I, I had a feeling that the family probably knew that the family had somehow uh, benefited from from the from the slavery, but in, he'd also he then told me that the the, uh, the third generation. Lost, lost the plantation, and since since I've been there in 2018, in fact, quite recently, uh, um, uh, I had a lot of contact with a researcher in Brazil called Monica, uh, who who is looking at the Jibo family from a different angle. So new information has come to light. Uh, so suddenly we now know that the plantation that they had uh, in the in in Muritiba was growing coffee. So all this new research is, com is coming through, uh, and this is, you know, the, this is this is the fascinating thing that if you are working on a project over a longer period, it's what I call slow journalism in a sense. You have there's time for things to do, to evolve and develop, and of course that makes the project more richer. And then you have to reflect on it, and you have to then, you know, maybe change some of the original um, assumptions or original. And knowledge that you had gained, um, and I think you know that's what makes this subject, uh, you know, an interesting subject because no, nothing is never fixed. Mm. Uh, it's an evolving story, yes, isn't it? Yes. It's interesting that the the business, as you mentioned, um, it did collapse, didn't it? It failed, and I believe that was around the time that slavery was abolished. You wonder whether. Well, Perhaps it was no longer a viable business without yeah. that free labour. But on the other hand, when you travel to Belize to pursue the story of Jersey family links with the mahogany trade, you were able to access records there much more easily, weren't you? 
Yes, and of course, that's probably because Belize was a British colony. It was used to known as British Honduras. So the systems that they have for administration, including archives, uh, I think comes from a kind of British tradition. And the documents are written in English, of course. Uh, the difficulty in Brazil is that all the, all the documents more or less are written in Portuguese. Uh, so, you know, I'm not fluent in Portuguese, so you have to use uh, the Google translation, so it's not so easy. But in, in Belize, it's very different. And already in Belize, uh, as you mentioned, we already had some information about Jersey merchants uh, going there uh, in the, you know, late 18th century when, when, the, when, when the area becomes a British colony. We knew quite a lot about the family connections with Belize, because I believe initially, um, going back quite a few years now, the Société Gersiès was receiving family history inquiries from people in Central America with the surname Gabarel. Now, it's a surname that's died out in Jersey now, but they were wanting to understand their own family histories and their link to this island thousands of miles away. And so researchers here had investigated that story, and I believe you got interested and sort of working on the um, research of the historians, you then travelled out there to look at the original documents. Yes, that's correct. I mean, the information that I was, that I, that I was given in Jersey came from uh, uh, Anna Bagliani, who at the time was a library assistant at the Société Jersey, and she did a lot of family history research for when people were making inquiries. Uh, but the Gabrels um, is an interesting, I think, uh, family connection because uh, but what became obvious to me when I went there is that Joshua Gabriel, who we know, sailed to, uh, to Belize in 1787 with his Jersey wife Elizabeth. Uh, you know, very, very soon upon his arrival, he, be he began to establish some romantic relationship with another woman uh, in, the, in the colony called Catherine White. And they had three children. Um, you know, obviously, in the census records in Belize archives, they list, you know, your ethnicity or your, you know, your kind of status, if you like. And Catherine White is listed as a colored woman, which, which at the time means that she is of mixed race. I mean, all the enslaved people on the plantations carry the name of the slave masters, right? So when, when what we know is that when the Gabriel when the uh, emancipation, if you like, of slavery, or when the slavery is abolished in Belize itself, that happens in 1834. Uh, soon after, immediately after that, the, the Gabrielles, this, this is the children of Catherine and Joshua, this is William, Joshua and Anne, they, they make a claim for compensation through the, the compensation scheme. And so we know what money they were given by the British government, you know, to relinquish their slaves. Um, and uh, soon after that, the, there's lots of Gabrielle suddenly appearing in the census records, where before, you know, in the census record, it's only the, the master and his or her family which are listed by name. Then, you know, it's then listed, you know, how many slaves they own, what their names are, only their first names, what their age are, and so on. But actually, in the census record, I think the one that followed after 1834, uh, I think it's the 1839 census record. Suddenly, I noticed that there was a lot more Gabarels, you know, who were listed. 
So these are former enslaved yes, uh, people, people who have been owned by Gabarels who that's now what I, that's what I assume. That's what I assume that is the case. So because there's no, actually in the 1839 census, there, there's no record of either William, Joshua and Anne. So that suggests to me they have left Belize after the slavery has been abolished. So they got their compensation. They're most, they made, I don't know where they went to. I haven't looked that up. Maybe they settled in America. Maybe they settled in, in, in United Kingdom. We don't know. Uh, Joseph Gabriel wasn't the only Jersey per- person who went there. There was many other Jersey merchants. So you have uh, quite a few names in, in the archives there. And I have, I was allowed to make a, a, a record, a photograph, if you like, a high-resolution image of all the records that I uh, found of interest. So I have, you know, uh, records of people like Francis Valpy, uh, George Leggett, and both of them were... Uh, they had wharfs in Belize City, so that so that means that there would have been wharfs where there were built. Some uh, George Gett was a shipbuilder. Uh, I don't know if he ship, built any ships out there, but there were definitely uh, merchants whereby goods would arrive to their wharfs, and then they would sell, you know, merchandise from there. They also owned uh, a couple of slaves each. Mainly, they were, I think they were probably working on their on site on their wharfs. Uh, you also have other people like uh, the Disengra uh, brothers who were ship owners, Aaron, Peter, I can't remember the last one. Uh, they were mainly the ships who would then sail from Jersey to Belize, uh, you know, bring back the mahogany, both to, I mean, this, the, the Jersey ships would bring mahogany uh, to London as well as Jersey um, and Liverpool. Um, so you had a Disengra. Uh, you also had... Uh, James and John Poindesters, who were agents, more on the kind of financial side, they were agents living in London. Uh, you also had Thomas Pickstock, as I mentioned, who was a key figure, really. So we, we see the evidence for this today in the island, don't we, in buildings such as the Victorian House at Jersey Museum, where we have a beautiful mahogany staircase that runs throughout the whole house all the um, furniture and fittings are all made of mahogany so reflecting those very strong links between the island and those trade routes with Belize Um, I mean I know from a personal point of view I was involved in um, interpreting the house in the past when we put together the story of the people who lived there in the um, mid-19th century and our focus was really on um, that family story and looking at um, census returns and family letters and building up a picture of the people who lived there and we just weren't we sort of mentioned the mahogany in terms of Jersey's maritime links and you know the sort of skilled craftsmen but we just weren't aware of this connection with the slave trade and how this mahogany was being produced by enslaved people on these plantations. So it's, you know, this is an, an evolving story and it's been a, a sort of learning process for all of us. Um, so it's fascinating to hear about this connection with the Galbarrel family. Yes, I mean, I, I actually live in a house, in a very old Jersey house myself, and we have a mahogany staircase, you know, in that house. And so I think a lot of a lot of old houses in Jersey would have some mahogany furniture at some point. And you're right; you don't, you don't, you wouldn't normally begin to think about how did that piece of of dark wood, you know, uh, what's the history, the dark history of that? Because the reality was that the extracting that mahogany wood from the dense forest in Belize was really a strenuous work. 
Well, thank you very much, Martin. That's been a really fascinating insight into your areas of interest into this subject. It sounds like there's a lot more research to be done by historians to fill in some of the gaps and pursue some of these lines of inquiries. But I think you've given us a really good sense today of the complexities of Jersey's historic trade links and some of the times when it's touched upon that story of transatlantic slavery. <laughs>